So tonight, as this morning, we are finishing up on a series, and uh, we're finishing up the book of Amos, which means that we are to Amos chapter 9, and it is, in some estimation, the only bright spot in the book, and we will see that. Um, Amos chapter 9, it begins on page 1430 in your pew Bibles, the words will also be on the screen. The conclusion to the oracles of Amos. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left, I will kill with the sword. No one will get away, none will escape. Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on top of Mount Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river Egypt. He who builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundations on the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtur, and the Aramaeans from Kerr? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the commands, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. I promised it would get good. Verse 11. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we come into the last chapter of this book, the prophetic message of Amos remains unswervingly consistent. Judgment is coming. Judgment is certain. Judgment is unavoidable. The only divine promise that that seems to be offered thus far from Amos in the first eight chapters is the promise of God's wrath against his people coming to fruition. 
And the first half of chapter 9, as I hope you noticed, functions to suck every remaining molecule of hope out of the atmosphere. See, the response of the people to the message of Amos is what ultimately sealed their fate. The attitude of those who heard the prophet's message uh, could be described this way, and it's hinted at in the text. They're thinking, even if judgment comes, many of us will, will somehow escape it. Or, uh, yeah, well, that might happen, but, but it will never happen to me. Are any of you like that? Yeah, that might happen, but it's not going to happen to me. And the response of God in this situation is, hey, people, uh, don't bet on it. The end of verse 1, no one will get away, none will escape. Commentator Robert Rayburn says it this way, God intends to punish his people for their unfaithfulness, and what God intends to do, he does, and no man can shorten his hands. So begins chapter 9. And putting first things first, let's look at verses 1 to 8. Once again, we wade into these severe proclamations of judgment, um, these proclamations of judgment that we have been uh, all too familiar with in the first eight chapters of the book. And verse 1 provides this fifth and, and final vision of God's divine judgment. The first, you remember from a couple weeks ago, was, was a swarm of locusts. The second was a consuming fire. The third was that divine plumb line representing Israel's failure to meet the standard of God. Fourth was a basket of ripe fruit representing not flourishing and, and harvest, but representing the appropriate time for God's judgment to come upon his people. And here Amos writes, I saw the Lord standing by the altar. Amos sees the Lord standing by the altar, and what is he dispensing? He is dispensing judgment. And the Lord said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of the people. Those who are left, I will kill with the sword. Now, this is kind of interesting. Because in the book of Isaiah, we find kind of a, a similar, kind of a parallel vision. And I want to read this. It's from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And so notice, in the vision of Isaiah... The Lord is seated on the throne dispensing forgiveness. And in the vision of Amos, the Lord is standing by the altar dispensing judgment. Now it's interesting because it kind of seems backwards. 
We typically understand the throne to be the place where the king dispenses judgments, and we understand the altar as the place where people could expect what? Forgiveness, right? The altar was where the the God-appointed sacrifices were offered to atone for the sins of the people in order that they might be reconciled with God. So in a vision of the Lord standing by the altar, the people would have expected words of salvation. But the Lord speaks words of judgment instead. Destruction of a religious building, the temple at Bethel, and the destruction of a religious, falsely religious people, the Israelites. Now, as we have covered in previous weeks, God was pretty disgusted with the the external surface religious behavior of the people. Yes, they, they went to church and they brought sacrifices and they gave offerings, but these had become to them just items to check off a list in order to keep God appeased. But, you know, as we talked about throughout the series on prayer as well, God did not covenant with his people in order to have some sort of transactional relationship. And because the people of God rejected the relationship that God desired to have with them, he decided in judgment to bring the religious building down right on top of their religious heads. And then we get to verse 2. Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. This is what Bible scholars call a merismus, and what it indicates is totality. Kind of like as far as the east is from the west, as far as the north is from the south. This, from the depths of the grave to the heights of the heavens. No place in heaven or hell would protect these people or provide safety from judgment. There was nowhere to run. Verse 3 is similar language. Though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. So from the tops of the highest mountains to the depths of the deepest seas, nowhere to hide. Verse 4. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Even being conquered and taken into exile, as terrible as that would be, would not spare them from the judgment of God. Now, scholars believe that verses 5 and 6 actually come from a a then well-known hymn to the Lord, extolling his, his sovereign power in the world. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Lord is his name. Its inclusion here serves as an exclamation point, but but it's also a bit ironic because uh, I would imagine that the Israelites loved to sing this hymn. Because they imagined the Lord's power and the the Lord's rule to always be their protection and always bring them prosperity. But the message of Amos to Israel throughout this entire book has been that the sovereign power of the Lord by which he dispensed judgment upon the nations would dispense judgment upon the people of Israel as well because they were just as evil and just as rebellious as the surrounding nations. Indeed, they were worse 
Because unlike the nations, the Lord had revealed himself to them and actually made a covenant relationship with them. But they had rejected the covenant, the revelation, and the relationship. Finally, Amos says in verse 7 that the Israelites are no different than the other nations. He mentions the Cushites, he mentions the Philistines, he mentions the Arameans. Amos reminds them and challenges them on the uniqueness that they were supposed to have as God's people. Or more accurately, he reminds them of just what it was that made them unique. Not their collective experience in the exodus and wilderness wanderings. Not their moral superiority, certainly. The Israelites were unique only because God elected them to be unique and holy and set apart as his covenant people. But this amazing privilege in and of itself would not exempt them from judgment. Because as we talked about a number of weeks ago, with privilege comes responsibility, obedience to the commands of God. When God and Israel entered into this covenant relationship at Mount Sinai, blessings and curses were attached to uh, being faithful within this covenant relationship. And so in a sense, we can consider this a um, conditional relationship. And the fact is this, that the people of God would not and could not enjoy the privileges of the covenant if they refused to accept the responsibilities that came with the covenant relationship. And in a sense, I would argue that it's the same for us. When God entered into time and space in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, a new covenant was established between God and human beings. The promise of this new covenant is the forgiveness of sins through faith alone. Jesus said in the upper room, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And this forgiveness, though it is freely offered to everyone, comes with responsibility as well. It is repentance and belief, a daily turning from sin and renewal of faith in Jesus Christ. And in a sense, the message of Amos to Israel is the same message that God gives to us. Judgment, a final judgment, is coming. The final judgment is certain. The final judgment is unavoidable. And so to this point, we have had eight and a half chapters of persistent doom and gloom, describing unacknowledged and unrepentant sin on the part of the people and the severe certain judgment of God. Verse 8, surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth Yet, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Now, as we come to the end of the book, suddenly in the middle of verse 8, the tone begins to change. A light begins to break through the dark clouds that have gathered. Perhaps hope is not altogether lost. Because the God of the Bible, our God, God Almighty, is a God of judgment and mercy. God is a God of holiness and love. God is a God of justice and grace. 
And all of this held together provides an honest balance of Scripture's witness. And of course, we see these apparent contradictions reconciled, perfectly united, and beautifully displayed in the cross of Christ. Because of Jesus Christ, what he did, what he sacrificed so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled to God. Because of what Christ did, we cannot speak of God's judgment without going on to speak of his mercy. But equally, we should never speak of God's love without speaking of God's holiness either. So remembering the nature of God's judgment against sin and holding together what scripture holds together, we now look at God's great promise that concludes the prophecy of Amos. Verses 14 and 15, the Lord says, I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own lands, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. God says that he will restore the fortunes of his people, Israel, and he paints a beautiful picture of what that would look like. We see in these final verses characteristics of the, the restored and renewed people of God. First, the restored, renewed people of God would be uh, wonderfully diverse. Not only Jews, but Gentiles as well. Gentiles from every nation and people group and language. Where do I get that? Well, let's start with Israel. Redemption and restoration for Israel is found in verse 8. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. It goes on to say they would be shaken like through a sieve, but not a pebble would reach the ground. The Israelites would, would be scattered throughout the nations, but they would live and they would have the opportunity to continue to serve God. The door of salvation was held open for them a little longer. But here's where the Gentiles come in, verses 11 and 12. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that, what? They may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. Now, the mention of Edom here is significant, and it is meant to represent um, a much greater category of people than just Edomites. If you remember from the Old Testament, the Edomites were descended from Esau, Jacob's brother. You remember that story, Jacob stealing Esau's birthright and, and blessing, and, and then Isaac, um, once he finds out about this, um, he has this kind of leftover blessing to Esau. We find that in Genesis 27, where Isaac says to Esau, your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness and away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, you will serve your brother, but you will grow rest restless and will throw his no yoke from off your neck. Now, we have already encountered Edom in the book of Amos as well, all the way back in 1 verse 11, where it says, For three sins of Edom, even four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. 
And so I guess what this is saying is that, that Jacob symbolizes the covenant of promise, and in his line, the promise would be fulfilled, the promise the, that was given first to Abraham, right? But Esau, or Edom, symbolizes the Gentile nations who were excluded, at least at the time of Amos, from the covenant. And here what Amos is saying is that, that in the new age, the new age ushered in by Jesus Christ, the division between Jacob and Esau is going to be abolished. And so you're going to have the remnant of Jacob and you're going to have the remnant of Esau and together they would be redeemed brothers once again. They would find unity when the tent, uh, the house of David was rebuilt. Acts 15, 15 says, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages beautiful picture, a beautiful picture that we are living out and experiencing right now in the aftermath of Jesus Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Secondly, the restored, renewed people of God would enjoy supernatural abundance. Verses 13 and 14 say, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman, the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. <clears throat> so what we have here is a description of material fulfillment, picture of heaven when all will be as it should be. We also have a picture here of spiritual fulfillment, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and a, a harvest of souls for Jesus Christ. So supernatural abundance is the second. And finally, the third. The restored, renewed people of God would have eternal security. This is a big one for me. Verse 15, I, this is the Lord speaking, will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. God's people planted so securely that they would never again be uprooted. I hope you see that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of these beautiful promises. The prophets, of course, did not altogether understand how God was going to uh, accomplish all this. They didn't know the timing. They didn't know the circumstances. They didn't know the person. They didn't know it was going to be Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, Amos was given this insight to look beyond the judgment that would come upon God's people Israel to Israel's restoration but actually beyond restoration to all the way to God's final consummation. And for now, brothers and sisters, uh, we are part of that remnant, that community established by Jesus Christ. Crossbearers filled with the Holy Spirit, living in the kingdom of God even now as it comes. Ambassadors to the nations, securely planted already, in our eternal inheritance. As Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1 verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. 
Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's pray.